So we're going to continue from where we looked at Samson. And the reason we looked at Samson is because I feel that Samson is a very good representative of the way I think that Christianity has gone overall. The problem is always for us to look at the Christian world out there where it seems that the Lord is moving. It seems that there is some presence of the Lord, some power of the Lord. And yet, when you look at what they're teaching, preaching, believing, it doesn't look like the God of the Bible at all. And yet, there's, there's something there. And I think Samson is, uh, the Lord has been speaking to us about, Samson is a way to understand that. Um, because the fact is that Samson, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit moved on Samson and with Samson. And so that's why we're doing this study, to try and understand why there is guys out there like Curry Blake, for instance, where we know these recorded miracles. Mm. And yet, you look at what they teach and you go like, this doesn't even come from the same book. And yet he followed on from uh, John G. Lake. And we know that John G. Lake was no doubt a Joshua of his generation. And so uh, I'd like us to use these examples, these images, in the Bible for us to learn how to negotiate all of this. Because we want to walk in some of the power of God. We want to see the power of God manifest. But we know there's danger when it comes to that. We want to safely negotiate those things. We want to move in wisdom. We want to move in knowledge. But we also understand that we have to wisely uh, deal with with knowledge even um, and uh, there's way too few reasonable wise voices out in the world the level of foolishness we're encountering overall is, is un unthinkable right so start us off with Romans mm. So keep Samson in mind. Today we're going to start to look at Joshua as an opposite view from Samson. But we are still busy with Romans 19. Eight. Verse nine. Uh, Romans 8 verse 19. <laughs> there is no Romans 19. We're not busy with that. <laughs> if you're busy with Romans 19, please continue. Stop. Then, um, Immediately stop. Okay, but so we're doing several things. We we are in the year where we're looking at godliness. Yeah, I was just about to. Sorry. No, no. Uh, we're taking the uh, approach uh, to godliness. We're starting from uh, Romans chapter eight, verse nineteen, but we're going all the way back to the examples in the Bible to start to get some understanding, systematic understanding of what we don't want to develop, what we want to develop. Because remember, the focus is godliness. 
and the outcome is Messiah likeness. Mm. Now Messiah did walk in power. But a person that folk would thinks that Yahushua was all about power mm. makes a big mistake. Okay. I'm just going to read Romans 8 then. Okay, so Romans 8 verse 19 says, <clears throat> For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And so we're going to spend the year looking at how this connects to godliness. <laughs> <laughs> the sons of God. I mean, this is, we know that in this chapter, Paul is letting us know that the creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And what we are going to spend the year on is developing a mental picture of what that would look like. What would the sons of God look like? We know it doesn't look like anything that we see on the earth right now, that we know. And it doesn't look like the picture that I see in the mirror at the moment either, that we know. The religious folks would say, yes, everything is about Jesus Christ. Let's be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Easy answer. And it would reveal the level of not understanding anything. Because they're assuming that they have some idea or image of Yahushua that has substance. Our approach is it will take an in-depth study that leads to understanding and then a process of walking out understanding for us to even begin to understand Yahushua. Now if any of us think that we yet understand that then we might as well then go do something else because we don't understand it yet. We've spent all this time just doing the work to undo some of the things that we had in our minds and our understanding so far. Then we established basic principles so that we can just carry on on the road. And now we can start a more focused process on understanding the image and the likeness of Yahushua that is to be formed in us. So we're at that juncture in our, on our road. Okay, so we're just starting out. In the process of finally, we start. Of being understanding what we've been restored into. Mm -hmm. So we understand that there's a long road ahead. We're not even going to use the word maturity yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're not. We're not there. We are maturing, but we're not even going to think about that in connection to us yet. We have established the basic structure that we can work with. That's all we have done so far. So we are patient and we are moving forward. Does it make sense? So the Israelites came out of Egypt 
through the Red Sea, the water was parted. They came all the way to the mountain, the law was given, saw the glory of God on the mountain, and then they went through the whole process of building the tabernacle. So we're more or less there. We at least, we have a basic form of a tabernacle in place. We have been careful to make sure that we in establishing the priesthood, nobody is going to burn profane fire and we don't lose people unnecessarily. But this is more or less the place that we are. Now, from there, they could potentially make it into the promised land. Now, we've come, legally, we've come into the promises of God. But we want to understand in our walk that we don't want to overreach or overshoot as far as where we are. Okay, so we don't have to feel like we're failing because we're not going to overreach and we don't have to feel like we have achieved yet and then slow down because we know there's a lot lying ahead of us, a long journey. Let's look. So what would we say? Samson. God rejected Israel for 40 years and subjected them to be afflicted by the Philistines. We see that the time of the judges was not a glorious time, although the stories are very impressive. It was a time where God was to reign personally and sovereignly over His own people. Now, if we're going to look at the beginning of the story in the Promised Land, it's a wonderfully exciting potential of a story. We see that after all the uh, miracles and the tribulation in the wilderness, finally the Israelites come into the Promised Land, and we're going to look at the wonderful start that God gives them. The Promised Land land flowing with milk and honey. And then we're going to have the potential, if we look from where Joshua leads them into the promised land, we have this potential God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, He is going to rule and reign over His people sovereignly. And He's going to do it through the priesthood, and He's going to do it through the judges. But remember that uh, at Mount Sinai, God speaks to them about the entire nation being a nation of priests unto the Lord. His plan for them was that they all would live as priests, ministering unto each other and unto God. It's a great plan. It's a wonderful plan. And that it gives them an entire lifestyle, a culture that would teach them and facilitate this process, where they would all be constantly ministering unto each other and unto the Lord, he shows them that He's going to magnify His own name among the nations through them. He's going to give them this land. And um, the story starts out really well. And they settle the land. They defeat their enemies. God gives their enemies into their land. They ransack cities, burn cities to the ground, kill entire tribes in the process. They take the land that has been promised to them. God gives it to them. 
and um, God is going to rule over them and reign over them. And this is where everything goes south, so to speak. Because it's in this time that they basically start forgetting where they come from and where they are. Mm -hmm. They turn to the nations around them. They start worshipping the gods of other people. How the heck do they go from this origin, this revelation of God, to mm. worshipping little idols made of stone? And wood. And wood. How did they get there? But anyways, this is the story. And it's in the light of this that we see Samson um, come into being. And Samson is such a beautiful representative of the Israelite story. His story starts with an angel announcing his birth. I mean, you have a start to life <laughs> like that. I mean, you, from your earliest memories, your parents are telling you, and, and everybody in the community knows, they're waiting for Samson to grow up. Everybody knows this is a special boy. His parents are telling him all the time, this is why we're not cutting your hair, don't eat anything that's defiled or unclean. You are special. He is born to be a leader to God's people. And then as a young man, he has the experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon him mightily. He rips a lion apart. It's very much like the story of Superman. <laughs> Thank you for that. I mean, he realizes he's not normal. So this wonderful beginning to life, he's just like the Israelites, starts off with all this promise. God makes everything possible. So, we're going to ask some questions. Did God speak to Samson at all? Sure. See, this is where the reality of the story really becomes apparent. What's the use of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person in power if God's not going to speak to you? If he had any wisdom at all, he'd leave the lion alone and go seek God's face. And uh, the reason we're doing this study is because we're going to be able to see the face of Christianity in the face of Samson. Because this is what Christians do. They run out and they go look for the lion. Instead of staying in the quiet place and seeking for the voice of God. Christians think this is the way to walk out your faith. You go to the mall and you go pray for the sick. Now, I'm not saying that's not the way to do it. That's the first thing they want to do. They want to go prove the power of God upon their lives. Instead of waiting. Now, what's the thing about Joshua? What does he do as an early young man? Yeah, so maybe just, so obviously we're going to do a bit of a comparison study.
between Samson and Joshua. Um, obviously, Samson comes later, a few years later. And um, if we kind of rewind and look at Joshua, and we're going to see why we're looking at Joshua specifically. But so, um, interesting, God doesn't speak to Joshua before he before Moses dies, directly. So Moses, we know that Moses himself becomes to the Israelites uh, like God. So he talks to them for God, on God's behalf. But then the moment that Moses dies, it says that God now speaks to Joshua. But before, and we know that this is, this is 40 years, because Joshua is already a young man when they come out of, out of Egypt. So for 40 years, Joshua's attitude is one of learning and equipping. Uh, oftentimes we see that when God calls Moses to, to speak to him, it's, it, the scriptures would kind of mention that, so Moses arose with his servant Joshua and they went up the mountain. Now Joshua wouldn't go in, so he wouldn't be present um, in the conversations that God would have with Moses. But once Moses came out, we see that there was Joshua waiting. So for the 40 days and the 40 nights that Moses went up the first time to receive the tablets of stone, we see that once he comes out to start descending down the mountain, there's Joshua on the mountain. He also doesn't know what's going on in the camp when they made the golden calf. So Joshua, for 40 days and 40 nights, was on his own, not even in the presence of God, but on his own waiting on the mountain for Moses to come down. It says that God would meet with Moses face to face in the tabernacle. And then when it was done, he would go back to his tent. But Joshua, a young man, he would remain at the entrance of the tabernacle and he wouldn't leave. And this was kind of, this was Joshua's attitude for 40 years. And we know that the Lord uses him during those 40 years to also establish and accomplish certain things. Uh, he leads the Israelite armies and they see great victory. But for 40 years, we don't see that God speaks to Joshua directly. And for 40 years, he takes in an attitude of just being there, learning, being as close as he possibly can, but not taking anything for himself. Uh, waiting in humility and equipping himself so that when the time comes, he's ready. And when the time comes, he is ready. <laughs> and so these are some of the lessons that we're going to learn and we want to reiterate. We want to emphasize. And it's very important. Because one of the common mistakes that mo many believers make is they want to take God's promises for them. And they uh, can recognize that there's promises that include their lives or include them. But then we want to say, oh, God wants to use me. God has made me promises. The moment we have that attitude grow in us, we're going to get into the same situations as Samson did. Joshua is not responding to... God's promises to him or his calling. God's responding to, uh, Joshua's responding to God. And he's serving Moses. He's hanging out close to Moses. Now that's wise. Moses is a representative of God's plan. 
Now let's talk about Moses' response. I mean, in Hebrews it says that Moses had revelation of Yahushua. And God puts him in a situation where he is looking after the sheep. But even in Moses' great moment of calling, Moses is looking at, been spending the last 40 years looking after sheep or whatever. Exciting stuff every day I get up, I walk behind the sheep through the wilderness, watch them eat, watch them poop. What's them eat? What's them sleep? <laughs> then I take them back. Um, next morning I wake up, and then there's a burning bush, <laughs> and uh, God speaks to Moses, and Moses says, "I want to go back I to like the sheep. looking after the sheep, please." <laughs> Well, in his defense, he's like 80 years old by then. I think he was like in retirement mode. It's like, I've got this sheep thing. <laughs> I've got the sheep thing down now. I've, I don't know how long I've lived. I have this to is do successful. This. Let me just carry on. <laughs> God says, Moses, you have been chosen. Go to Egypt and lead my people out of Egypt. Go speak to the Pharaoh. He goes like, I want to look after the sheep. Look after my sheep. <laughs> So God had to convince Moses. You see, but it, as much as we don't understand that, look, the person that goes, the moment there's a burning bush, goes like, me, me, I'll go. That's the guy to be careful yeah. of. Okay? So, so it might look like Moses' hesitance isn't the right response, but the guy that goes like, I can do this, we want to be careful of that as well. Okay. Let God rather convince a person to go do what he's got to do. So there's these lessons we can learn. So you would think that Moses would be a little bit more prepared for what's coming. But he's going to go do what, he's, what he has to do. But he does it in humility. He does it in obedience. He only does it because God is really insisting on him doing what he's going to do, but he's going to do it in devotion. Hmm. Joshua, we find he he's hanging out close to the anointing, close to the presence of God. Not asking for anything, hmm. not imposing himself. Not insisting. He's not insisting on anything. He's just there. He's part of the plan. And he's waiting for a long time. Yes, uh, the great battle against the Amorites with Moses... Uh, hand says the staff has to be in the air Joshua is the one on the ground fighting and he's going to gain the victory but there's a partnership a team effort um, happening and this is I think one of the great aspects of Joshua's ministry is that he's brought into his moments in context to a team context to it's the Holy Spirit it's God doing it he's just going to play his part Mm. And we see this with Moses as well. Mm. It's not Moses doing anything great. Mm. Moses is playing his part. Mm. Moses is fulfilling his role as far as kingdom purposes is concerned. Now, do you want to 
just open up the whole thing regarding before we look at Joshua's story that there's kingdom purposes yeah so let me start off uh, putting it this way so um, when we especially compare and there would be more comparisons but if we compare for instance the story of Samson or the character of Samson and that of Joshua uh, it also opens up the um, comparison between God's kingdom purposes and God's earthly purposes. So let me explain relatively quickly. When we consider God's earthly purposes, we know that certain things are going to happen on the earth according to his perfect will, but the earth, as we know it, is not going to exist forever. So the existence of the earth is going to end. So even though God is going to do specific things that are his perfect will on the earth, once this earth and everything on it is taken away, uh, then it becomes a non-issue. So it's not eternal. So it's valid, but it's not eternally valid. Because once the, once the earth is gone, then that also is gone. And then on the other hand, we have God's kingdom purposes. And that is his eternal perfect will, his perfect will uh, for that which will remain forever in eternity, that which will be established forever in eternity, that which will be true forever in eternity. And, um, and so I think a nice comparison when we look at Samson and, and Joshua is... Um, so we know that Samson is endowed with great strength and wanted with great physical strength on the earth. Uh, and we understand that this was used by God for earthly purposes because he was supposed to uh, begin to deliver the Israelites from the suppression of the Philistines. But then when we look at Joshua, and there's a lot of scriptures where God reiterates this one kind of idea, encourages Joshua into this one idea, and that is, be strong and of good courage. Mm. Be strong and of good courage. And then he says to him, because this is what you must do, but this, mm. be strong and of good courage. And so even though Joshua isn't endowed with physical strength for earthly purposes, mm. he's endowed with strength through the Spirit for kingdom purposes. Mm. Because his strength lies in eternity mm. and not in his own power and his own might or not even on things on the earth his strength comes from what he understands is true in eternity and that's the encouragement that god keeps giving him and so when we look at, at kingdom purposes and earthly purposes we do understand that sometimes these things can overlap in our life so um What is, if we just think about the purpose for each of our lives as sons and daughters of Almighty God, what is His kingdom purpose for all of us? Messiah likeness. We know that we are all called, first and foremost, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that is His kingdom purpose, His eternal purpose. Now that might take certain forms um, in terms of earthly purpose, things that are going to happen to us, through us, um, around us. But all of this is God's perfect will to bring us in line with His kingdom purpose, and that is to conform us to the image of His Son. 
how we don't want to, like Samson, get so focused on the earthly purpose and what is, God has given us here that we completely miss the kingdom purpose, which is to be conformed to his son. But if our focus is on his kingdom purpose, then we see, like Joshua, uh, the blessing of God can flow, and then he will move through our lives, uh, in our lives, around our lives, uh, and establish certain things on earth. But it's not about that. It all points back to, to kingdom purpose. So keep that in mind. We're going to get back to that and explain a bit more. So there's going to be a very real personal application. Uh, although we're studying the life of Joshua and we're going to look at some of it, there's a, there's a lesson that we'd like to establish and re-establish. And that is move away from any mindset that is God is going to do something big through me or with me. Or for me. It might be true that you are part of a big plan. And your life does matter. Each and every saint's life matters in the big plan. We are his children, we are his sons, we are his sons and daughters, and we know that he doesn't save multitudes in the community, not true salvation. We are the called out ones, and that makes us significant but never fall into the trap of thinking that the thing God has shown you about your life is the big focus. We have a responsibility to walk out God's plans for our lives, but the danger is when we start getting focused on that thing that we understand God's going to do. It's never... Now, for those of you that's walked the road, many of you would have been shocked and surprised in the beginning talking to us how we just refused to pay attention to that sense that you had that you were special. <laughs> I know that many of you Very felt special. a little bit disappointed. My dad says I'm special. <laughs> Remember how many of you came into this fellowship and it had been built into you because of all the religious speaking that you special, you are fearfully made, you unique, God has a calling for you, God has a purpose for you. And it's not that it's not true. It's just your purpose fits into the purpose He has for His kingdom in our generation. He's going to do in your life what's part of the work that He's doing in the body. And even if you're going to become the next president, that's not the main focus or purpose. Okay. If He wants to make you president, then equip for it. But if you focus on what's special about your life and your purposes, then you will go astray. Mm -hmm. Joshua, you with me? Yeah. Okay, we're talking about you today. So. <laughs> now, so Joshua, you were disappointed when I said, don't focus on the whole music thing that you're going to help redeem and fix it. Because you see, what, you were, what was happening in you is what happens in a lot of people. We want to focus on the thing God wants to do through my life. And we lose focus of the big picture, mm. the kingdom yeah. picture. We might also even fall in the trap of thinking that, oh, um, if there is this calling that God is going to do it, 
not just through me, but also kind of for me, because, mm -hmm. you know, I am alive here and I'm Anne's child, so yes, there is a purpose, but also this is like his gift to me, because I'm alive and I know him. <laughs> so keep all that in mind. Let's start looking at one of the aspects that we pick up in the book of Joshua. We are in chapter 2. And this is where he, dis he sends two spies ahead into the promised land. And the first city, city that's closest to the point where they're going to go through the Jordan is the city called Jericho. And we all know the big story of Jericho. But we're going to focus on something. The two spies goes out and we pick up something significant in the story. Let's go to verse 2. So the two spies are sent to Jericho, into the promised land. The Israelites are on the other side of the river. And it says, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So they're not very good spies. <laughs> Mission failed. Well, we're also going to see now they literally just walk into the city. Cause <laughs> they, they're kind of walking in. Like, hi, hi, everyone. We're here to spy. <laughs> see, as Israelites, they're not realizing that they're not as insignificant anymore as when they started out. Do Israelites walk into a huge city? It is enough of an incident for people to go tell the king. Two Israelites came into our city. Why now, is it such a big deal? They didn't announce, we are spies. <laughs> and two men walked into the city. And it was significant enough that people go warn the king. Now we're going to see why. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Now we know that now Rahab, the harlot, is going to hide them away. And something interesting comes out of the story of when Rahab speaks to them. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, the two spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. A pillar, well, a Canaanite harlot.
So here we see that in the time, this time, when it came to the Canaanites, the nations, the Lord was renowned. Do you want to sh just give us context? How long ago did yeah, all this so, happen? Okay, so this is 40 years after they came out of Egypt, right? This is, they've now finished the 40 years, all that generation has passed, and God has said, okay, now it's time to go into the promised land. And first they send out the spies. So 40 years is a relatively long time. When my parents speak about 40 years ago, they can't even remember everything to the T. <laughs> Let's put it in context. There's no TV. They're not watching documentaries about this. There's no photographs. There's no old newspaper clippings. <laughs> no, there's nothing on YouTube. Nothing. They can't search the internet. Who are the Israelites? Nothing like that. So 40 years has passed. And the Israelites have just been in the wilderness, going in circles. Okay. So 40 years ago, the God of heaven, with incredible might and power and signs, brought out this nation from Egypt in the process, destroying Pharaoh and his armies. He parted the Red Sea, they walked through on dry land, came into the wilderness, defeated some of the nations that came against them there, and there they've been for 40 years. Now, two spies show up in this city, and the people's hearts melt. Even a prostitute knows about what happened 40 years ago. On the, the other Israelites. side of the river. <laughs> this was a time when, when the Israelites came close, not because of their multitude, not because of how many they were. The people of Jericho says they, their hearts melted. Because everybody remembered the story of when the Red Sea was parted by God. A little bit later we're going to see these people, all these cities, these nations that's living in Canaan, they're all already scared because of the story of when God parted the Red Sea. But luckily the Jordan is in full flood this time of the year, and the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan. And there's a lot of them. And so they, they're already scared, they're making right for war. And then, imagine when the messenger starts running through the country and they say, the Jordan was just parted by God. The flooding river the water that flows from the top stopped flowing and the river bed has been exposed. Imagine the terror. It's one thing to be scared because you remember 40 years ago this God parted the Red Sea. Imagine the moments when they realized this God had just parted their river. And the Israelites are 
coming in. God is bringing them in. Well, they know what it took to bring them out. Well, he's purposefully bringing them in. <laughs> this was the days of the Lord's renown. The days where Yahweh was known, not the Israelites. They weren't talking about Moses. They were talking about the God of Israel. They weren't even really scared of Israel. They were scared of Israel because of the God who fought on their behalf, the God who led them. This was the renown of God. Now we're going to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Um, just so we kind of understand the context, when we think of the River Jordan drying up, it's not like the Lord just dried up a few meters. If you actually go look at the extent of what He dries up, because remember there's millions of them that have to cross over. Now, if they do it single file or even two <laughs> by two or three by three, it's going to take a few yes. days. They have to cross over in a day. Show them the distance they have to keep quickly. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yes, so the ark, remember the ark goes before mm. them. But they are not allowed to come near the ark. The Lord says to them, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, being the ark, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Now, a cubit is like the forearm of a man. So, 2,000 of those, they're supposed to be behind the ark of the covenant. And, um, and then... Or away. So, the priests are going to stand on the side, in the middle of the dry riverbed. And they're going to wait there. And then the people are going to pass by, but they've got to keep that distance between. So there is a huge... So if you go read through chapter 3, the distance of Jordan that's not flowing is kilometers, in, kilometers and kilometers that the Lord dries up. Because He stops it from where it, you know, it flows down. He stops it like way up. So there's kilometers of just dry riverbank where this mass of Israelites, millions of them, just coming across in, in one day. Now people downstairs, doesn't matter where you are downstream, they're all going to see this phenomena because water is going to flow and nothing is going to flow from the top. So the mm. river is literally just running dry all the way downstream. And then someone probably is going to go investigate as to why this is. And then, oh, here's millions of Israelites coming through a dry Jordan. In the middle of the dry Jordan River, the priests are standing with the Ark of the Covenant. It's scary stuff. Okay. So no wonder they had no spirit left in them. So then we know they go through and the whole story of how the walls of Jericho falls and we're going to pass 
by that um, and we're going to go to uh, what's the next scripture where did I write that now oh, there. chapter 9 And it came to pass, chapter 9, verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and the lowlands, and all the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. So the story goes like this. The people of this city, they send people out and they put old broken sandals on their foot, old torn clothes, their wine, wine skins that are tattered and have been repaired, they take dry, moldy bread and put it in their sacks and they come to the Israelites and they say they've come from a very far country. <laughs> and uh, Joshua says, how do we know you're not actually from close by? They said, look, the bread was still hot and fresh when we took it, when we left home. And look, it's dry and moldy already. Our shoes and our clothes were new. We've come this far and we have come to make a treaty with you and this is a surprising thing that happens next um, because yeah. where is it when they said that they didn't seek the Lord it is. yes verse 14 when the men of then the men of Israel took some of their provision, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities in the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sephira, Beeroth, and Kerjath, Yarem. But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Now they say we can't attack these cities because we've already made a covenant with them. We swore to them. And so Joshua says these, the people of these cities are now going to be their servants. They will be woodcutters and they will carry water for the Israelites. These cities, the people of these cities are happy to become their servants because they fear the Lord of Israel this it's better much. than dying. <laughs> when all the other nations have now come together and they've gotten their armies together to make war and prepare for war, these guys decided, no, we'll rather be their servants. 
Now, chapter 10, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. So these guys that came to make peace, they were not just a small city, they were one of the great cities. And because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty, therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jermuth, Yafia, king of Lakush, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So they decide these traitors, they're going to attack them first. What happens next is again the renown of the Lord in the days of Joshua. So they come up to attack these cities that has made peace. And uh, God speaks to Joshua and he says, Go, don't be afraid, I will give them into your hand. So all these mighty kings are now around the city Gibeon. And um, verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Past tense. I have delivered them into your hand. Just so, so Gibeon, the city, sends message to Joshua and the Israelites are going to come and help us. Yeah. Are your servants yeah. now? Help come us. and help us. <laughs> God says, Do not fear them. I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Askar and Makkadah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So basically, Israel just chased them really far, and the Lord killed them. <laughs> but then, so God is killing them with hailstones, but then Joshua does this. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, now this takes a lot of faith to mm -hmm. stand up in front of everybody and go, Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aeolon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Okay, if anybody was scared before. <laughs> right, so now the moon is no longer, oh, the sun is no longer moving. 
so that the day can be longer, so that they can slaughter more of the enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashir? So the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now the kings, they flee and they go hide in a cave, they find them, they kill them, and they sack and destroy their cities. And this was the conquest of the Southland. Now the Israelites are still going to have to go from there and uh, go and conquer the Northland. But this is how they come into Canaan. Fast forward into the days of Samson. Because the Israelites had turned to idols, God had given them over to be subjected by the Philistines 40 years And uh, yes, God spoke to Samson's parents and says he will begin to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of the Philistines. Now we re-look at the exploits of mighty Samson. How pathetic does it look? So... Samson has all this power coming over him. He slays a thousand men in one go with the jaw of a donkey. God doesn't speak to him. God doesn't speak to him. See, just when they come over the Jordan, now you maybe tell them about their first response. They've just moved through the Jordan. All the nations are trembling because God had parted the river. And the first thing they do. So the first thing they do once they cross the river, remember, they're not allowed to cross over until all the generation that had come out of Egypt from 20 years. So any man that was 20 years old and up that came out of Egypt, they were all supposed to die first before they could go. So that took about 40 years. And so it says that all, everyone, except obviously for Joshua and Caleb, that came into the promised land, none of those males had been circumcised. And they didn't circumcise them in the wilderness. Um, they were still circumcising the males uh, in Egypt, but they didn't circumcise anyone in the wilderness. And then the moment they cross over the Jordan, now obviously they're coming in god has just parted the waters they know they're supposed to take the land they've waited 40 years to finally get to this point they know god is going to fight for them there's a lot of work that needs to be done but the first thing they do is humble themselves in such a such an incredible way so they don't just fast for three days or have a kind of a feast to the Lord or sacrifice to the Lord or do any of those things, the first thing they do is they circumcise all the males. Putting them in an incredibly vulnerable state because all the Canaanites know they've just entered their land and they're scared and they know that Israel is coming to take their land 
And so, and it says that there they waited next to the river until all the males were healed, and then they continued from there. So this must have taken at least a week. And all the males are unoperational, they can't fight. For a while, they are unable to protect themselves. And the Canaanites are feeling threatened, they're feeling scared. If ever there was a time to kind of get rid of Israel so that they can be safe, this would be that time. But they don't. We know later the same thing as when the males have to go and present themselves three times a year in Jerusalem that God says that he's going to protect the nation and no one will attack them. Um, this really is an incredible move on their part. The, the trust that they put in God's protection and the trust that they witness uh, that they have in God and in his plan and in his might and in his ability to protect them, this really becomes a, a um, demonstration of adding virtue to faith. Mm. That we've God has led us now into the promised land. We can completely just trust that he is going to protect us. We know that he's already given everything into our hands. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to put off the flesh. Mm. So again, when we just connect this to the picture of baptism he's given them the promised land they go in but the first thing they do is the flesh has to stay behind we can't we can't progress into the promised land with the flesh so putting away the flesh putting away the past putting away the wilderness they're now moving into the promises of god that they knew um the entire thing really is is very very beautiful and this is something that i'd like for us to reflect back on and and now recognize that for all of us, we come to the baptism water and what we do is we let go of all our experience as Christians. We let go of all the things that we use to protect ourselves. We let go of ego, pride. And this is what we do. How vulnerable were you in the days after your baptism? And I mean, we check in with people, say, how are you doing? But we can't even protect you. It's not a, no one's wrong. Is you're going to find out, because putting off the flesh, you've just come to the biggest battle of your life. Battled against the flesh, battled against the, the enemies coming against you. You go through the water, you come out there, and you would be seemingly hopeless, vulnerable. And in this state, the Lord has proclaimed it to be so that uh, then the test comes and there's no one that can help really help you come through that test you come out of baptism and somewhere soon after baptism there's going to be a test and that's when we find out who's who Oh, in the days after the baptism, it's wonderful, it's exciting, but then what sets in a sense of, I don't know if anything is what I thought it was. Uh, we had our focus on all those great promises of God that was never going to be fulfilled anyways. How many of us were chasing uh, some figment of our imagination of success and security and we give up on all of that. And we come out of the water so vulnerable. It feels like we've wasted years. For many of us, it felt like we've wasted so many years. We have held on 
to things that had no substance. And we slowly but surely have to let that go. So, yes, we circumcised in the water, circumcised. Circumcision of the heart only happens in Messiah. So it's good for us to reflect back on how these things actually worked out because that's exactly what the Israelites did. Mm. They come into the promised land. It would have been safer to circumcise them on the other side, but no. They put off the flesh. They put themselves in a vulnerable state because this is, like Nadia pointed out, adding virtue to faith. And then we come to that to that test and we can tell you there's going to be a test I mean we can speak with people but you're going to have to pass the test mm-hmm. doubt there's feelings of wanting to go back to something that seemed safer seemed better but now you're in the promised land the only thing that you're going to be able to the only place to go now is Jericho can't avoid it can't avoid it and then many of us will go through the I experience. And that is unfortunately part of the walk. So they have this great victory. God causes the walls of Jericho to fall flat. They rout the city and uh, now they're going like, this is wonderful. We're so strong. God is with us. They send some spies to go check out I. They come back, they say, it's a weak city, the people are weak. We don't even have to send the full force. And what happens? Because somebody in the first victories of Jericho took something they weren't supposed to take. They hid it in their tent. Just some worldly things. And this is often an experience of the person after baptism is we want to keep something of the world, take it with us. And then we all look at the story of I. But then the Israelites are forgiven and they're sent back to I to go and have victory there. God gives them victory. And this is the story. We've got to understand that our journey ahead of us is we are going to take the land. So we've come into the promises of God. We've been baptized. We've been given eternal life. But now, He sends us back into this world and our mandate is to see the kingdom of heaven manifesting here. And it's going to be done one battle at a time. We've got to understand that God gives the victories but we're going to have to walk it out God's way. Now, yes? I think, um, so, also something that is, we should look at is um, when, the, when they are defeated at I, we all know the story, right? So, they don't know why, things are happening, it says like 36 men or something, 36 of the Israelite men were struck down and they go into a panic because why is God now, this is their first big battle and they're losing and Joshua goes, tears his clothes, falls face down on the ground, pours dust on his head and there they lie, him and the elders for the entire day and um, and then God says to him, why do you lie, dust on your face, get up and then um, and then Joshua says to, to the Lord, and this is in chapter 7, verse 7. 
So God says to him, why are you lying on your face? And then Joshua says to him, alas, Lord God. Joshua chapter 7, verse 7. Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. So now it seems, oh no, Joshua, you're doing the whole Israelite thing of, oh, we should have stayed in Egypt. It would have been better. But now look at what he says. Uh, oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Mm. Then what will you do for your great name? And we see Moses time and again has the same attitude when God says to him, okay, stand away from the Israelites. I'm going to now you know, break out among them and destroy them. Then Moses' response isn't, oh, Lord, just don't kill the Israelites. It's, Lord, if you do this, then what about your name? What is, what is your reputation going to end up being? What will the nations think of you? And this, I think, is also so important in this entire story, in this study that we're doing, is everything that happens to the Israelites as they come into the promised land isn't, even if we know, we know that Joshua is leading them and that there's, there was great purpose and destiny and anointing on Joshua to lead them, and even on the Israelites, but none of this is for the sake of Joshua or for the sake even of the Israelites. All of this happens so that the name of the Lord can be magnified and glorified. And this we see happening, it manifests because the, the nations are fearful and terrified, but not because of Joshua or not because of the Israelites, but because of the God that they know moves with them, the God that they know fights for them. And so everything that they do, all these exploits, um, even the circumcising themselves after they come into the promised land, the witness that they are continuously you know, witnessing, testifying to, is, is who God is. Mm -hmm. They're making God known. They're not taking any glory for themselves. Everything that happens is so that God's name can be glorified and magnified. And then when we fast forward and we look at the story of Samson, it seems that the Israelites themselves have forgotten so much about who God is that not even the Philistines don't even know. They, don't, they have no reverence for, for the God of Israel. And I mean, even after everything that Samson does and um, you know, killing all these Philistines again and again and again, and then even at his death, when he, with his death, kills the leaders of the Philistines. We don't see that this adds any reverence to them for the God of Israel. In fact, after this, they're going to come and make war against Israelites, and they have such a disregard for the God of Israel that they're going to dare steal the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple with their God, and then be shocked at the fact that God is going, that stuff starts happening in their cities and that God breaks out against them. God has to sovereignly move among the Philistines to help them understand who he is because Israel is not doing that at all. And this is kind of the state of, of things. And it's not even that long after the great exploits of Joshua and Israel as they come into the promised land. 
So, 40 years later, the people were still in awe about what happened at the Red Sea and what God had done to the, Israel, to the Egyptians. Problem is, once they met the Israelites, very quickly they lost their respect for the God of the Israelites. Even when God was moving powerfully on Samson, it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't the same thing. So what do we learn? What do we learn from this? There's a big difference between the way Joshua is used to establish kingdom purposes on earth and the way that the power of God is exhibited, but it is uh, not for kingdom purposes, just for the earthly purposes of the moment. Now we've seen this throughout history. We've seen how God has fulfilled His earthly purposes through the lives of men and women. Uh, Winston Churchill, you all know that I love the history of uh, the story of Winston Churchill. I believe he was supposed to be an apostle and a prophet. He had all the characteristics of both those ministries. And God did ultimately fulfill his purposes through the life of this man. Because God had decided. But his life didn't bring any glory to God. He didn't magnify the name of God. The purposes, earthly purposes, which was just fulfilled. Sometimes... For God's will to unfold on the earth, sometimes He's just going to do something because it, it needs to happen. Mm. But that's about it. So, as great as the story of Winston Churchill is, and as much as it played a huge role in the will of God to preserve <laughs> the world from the evil that Satan intended through Hitler, wouldn't it have been so much better mm -hmm. if Winston Churchill got to know God mm -hmm. and, and magnify him. his name? Mm -hmm. We know that Winston Churchill had brushed shoulders with the knowledge of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. At times even looked, there was speculation that maybe he believed in God because he said a few things that looked like it might have been true. Mm -hmm. From his life, it's very clear that he didn't know God. And there's many others through history. What lessons do we learn from this? The story of Samson is told as a heroic story. But in, on closer inspection, we see he was foolish. Whenever he speaks, he speaks in foolishness. We see that he... His life contains some powerful action that shows that God did with him what he was planning to do despite of the person Samson. Samson has no testimony when it comes to the ways of God. From his earliest, earliest actions, he has disregard for the ways of God and his own inheritance. Also, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that God 
God did for Samson what he said he was going to do despite of the person. He did with Samson what he was going to do despite of the person. So it's not like, oh, Samson, you're a mess of a person. You didn't do anything that you were supposed to do, but don't worry. I'm still going to use you to start to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. That's not what it was. He was the promise was to Israel. He was still going to use Samson to fulfill his purposes for Israel, despite of the person that Samson was. But that was because his will is perfect and his will needs to be done. And we're making this commentary because quite several people has um, uh, mentioned somewhere in us talking over the last uh, while, after especially last week, several person actually mentioned that, well, God still kept his promise to Samson or God still used Samson, God still did what God was going to do. God's plan doesn't, didn't, didn't change. That was mentioned two or three times by different people. That even Samson's disobedience didn't change God's will. But I don't want us to make that kind of mistake in thinking that's okay. We certainly don't want to end up being a blunt object in God's hands. And we don't want to start off with an idea that, well, firstly, the call is the call to come to salvation, to lay down one's life, and to become part of the body, not individually. Uh, the life that's been given according to God's predestined purposes might entail that God is going to do certain things for the sake of the kingdom or even for worldly purposes in your life and with your life. But even if a person becomes the first person to do an open heart surgery, that's wonderful. But that cannot be the purpose for a person's life. Surely godliness is a much higher call Surely, knowing God and becoming a witness to knowing God, a witness of His character and His person, is a higher call. doesn't make sense what we're saying. It's, um, God does have special purposes with certain people. I'm pretty sure that the first guy that made a motor car run uh, was destined to do that. And I'm pretty sure that the first, the person that figured out how to work rubber was inspired by God to do that. So there's certain earthly purposes that God will place in a person's life or in a family. But don't get confused that that is the purpose for our lives. It has to become secondary. Okay, so... And, and there's a lot of teachings out there where oh, a woman's greatest purpose is to raise her kids. If you didn't raise them for God, then getting them to survive through puberty was not an achievement. Because <laughs> yeah, surviving through puberty is much harder than surviving through infancy. <laughs> exactly. That is the hardest part. <laughs> 
So, so we don't want to confuse these things and we want to grow, establish a mentality, a way of thinking that we can't get fixated on my little idea of what I was supposed to do. Because people that have little ideas of what God wants to do with them mostly never walk in those things anyways. And there's a few people that's going to walk in the things but as a blunt object. Um, now we're going to explain something about grace mm. that is important to understand when it comes to the workings of grace in connection with this. Can you depict it for us on the board, please? Yes, I will. Um, let me just read one last thing. Well, both of these are going to be from the Sermon on Mount. Wait, before you go oh, yes. there. Just before you go there. Just one more big thing. We are all going to always be tempted when it comes to our purposes. Okay, in everything we do, let's endeavor to fit our purposes into the purposes of the body where the Lord has placed us, with other words, the general assembly. If there's any way that we can walk together with a senior person or another person for any season, as long as we can, then do that. Do what Joshua did as far as Moses is concerned. The enemy will always tempt us to say, but you, you know the promises the Lord has made you. Just go and go forth and do it. Okay, we, as far as we have any option, let's do it together. It's better. And we are saying this because there is going to be a whole new season coming where temptation will come our way. Again, the enemy never gives up. Okay. Now, the Lord saved you and you have salvation. But that's His purpose for your salvation fulfilled. That's not even a 10% of the story. In eternity, that's going to matter. But He saved you because He decided to save you. This life on earth is something that we have to find focus and purpose with. And so that's why it's so important we are reiterating the reason we all pitch up on a Sunday is because by being together we strengthen the work that the Lord is doing. The reason why we are all contributing to the Lord of the work, or the work of the Lord, is because <laughs> we cannot just eat from the table. We all contribute to the whole work. We do it as a body. And we know that it's not always going to be pleasant for everybody if the Lord sends us back to Uganda and you guys have to stay at home. But if you want to be part of that, make sure you equip yourself to the uh, degree that the Lord decides to send you. We're not going to decide who goes and who doesn't go. Mm -hmm. Now if there's a desire in the heart that has substance in what the Lord is speaking to you about then pursue it. But pursue it in a way that if it took me all these years to equip then you've got to know you're equipped when you're equipped. Okay, And we do it in the small ways. We do it in the conversations we have in the meantime, in the way we speak to each other, the way we interact with each other. Okay, so uh, it's, it's events like last night when we're together. 
where nobody is checking what you're saying or what you're doing. That's when you're actually writing your tests and your exams. Might not feel like it. How did we, in our interactions with each other, contribute to the building up of the body? The other person we're speaking to, how did we uh, manage to be encouraging? Uh, we contribute to the freedom, the joy, the peace in the other person's life. Or did we actually forget and talk nonsense to someone else? I'm just going to say it as it is. Because it's in the moments where we are selfish or we don't pay attention, we talk nonsense. Now we, we know how to have fun. And that's something that we're actively encouraging and it's part of something that we are learning to do. Fun isn't necessarily nonsense. It is, it is such a big change when uh, we had the opportunity to just spend time with Charlene last night when we were all together. It is a much different dynamic than a few years ago. Mm. We know each other, there's a substance, and we, can, we don't have to talk about anything serious, mm. but there's a safety, there's a belonging, there's a knowing. Mm. And, and such joy, growth. you kind of look for opportunities to laugh. <laughs> it's growth, it's real growth. There's a, there's a, we, know, we know each other, we're safe together, and that's, that's actually building up. Nobody said anything very spiritual. Mm. But in the process, it was a building up. Mm -hmm. It was the kind of fellowship that is contributing to the kingdom coming to earth. It doesn't look like much from the outside, but it has substance. And that's what we're moving towards. And when we are facing anybody else, we always have to keep this in mind. We don't have to, we, we avoid bringing something heavy under certain circumstances because of that mindset. If we can rest together, laugh together, feast together, then that's healthy. And that's why we watch every word we say, we watch what we do. But we have to contribute as well. It doesn't help not contributing to that. Does it make sense? This is kingdom stuff. Kingdom stuff. And that's how we win the future battles. Because then, when we have to go into battle together, will win. Okay, so keep these things in mind. When it comes to the big stuff, the moment the enemy tells you it's about your calling, your purposes, individually the Lord has big plans for you, you are in grave danger. Because maybe the Lord will do something mighty through you, but you don't want to end up having a Samson. Maybe in the final events of his life, when he pulled down the pillars and he killed 30,000, 3,000, whatever, people, maybe he did contribute to the final falling of the Philistine empire, but really did God need it to do it like that? He could do it like he did it with Joshua. God didn't need that kind of strategy to do it. Um, we don't know. We'll never know what God's actual plan was with Samson. That's the sad thing. We'll never know. All we have is this version of the story. 
we know that with Joshua, seeking the Lord in the right way, God used a hailstorm to take the enemy out. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And Joshua, I think we can with peace say that he's definitely one of the characters in the Bible that we see that we can have confidence that he actually walked out his the purpose and the destiny that God had with him and he, he completed it. And he got old. He got 110 years old and he was strong and he lived in peace. He was still wise. He still, you know, led the children of Israel and in the promised land, having brought the people over and there was, there was peace. They were still Israel um, and he, God was still the God of Israel by the time that he died. And I think that's so beautiful. So beautiful. That's what we... That's what we want. That's what we were called to. That's and Joshua didn't lead the armies from the back. He was, he was in the front. He was right there. When they attacked the enemy, Joshua was in the front attacking the enemy. Front line. He was waging the war. How many battles did Joshua fight in his lifetime? What was his statistical chances of surviving it? And he grew old. And he knew peace and prosperity he saw the promises fulfilled and it's so beautiful when the lord calls him you can go read in joshua chapter one i mean but it the lord says it kind of a few times if you go look in numbers and deuteronomy and so on where the lord kind of gives instruction about what joshua is supposed to do you see that the lord instructs him to um meditate on the word day and night he says that he, he has to have the laws, his laws, in his mouth and in his heart and in his mind. And then when they cross over the Jordan with the circumcision, when they put the stones, the 12 stones, Joshua sits and then it says that he rewrites the laws on the tablets. And then he reads all the law of Moses, everything that Moses ever wrote down concerning the law. He reads every single word. He doesn't leave anything out. He reads everything. In the presence of Israel, they all hear it as they go into the promised land. So this kind of happens in combination with the circumcision, and then they go. And um, and really, we see, because God says, if you do this, if you meditate on my word day and night, if this is, if this is what guides your steps, then you will prosper. And it's true. He dies at the age of 110 in peace and prosperity. I'm sure when... Joshua was an old man and somebody came to see him, he would have had huge stories to tell. But I suspect that somebody that came and visited him would have heard the laws of Moses exactly. recited exactly. one by one. Can you tell us about this, this, this battle? Yes, but first let me tell you this law. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing we see Joshua on his way to Jericho. It says he encountered a man with his sword drawn. In the New King James, it's a capital letter for man. Yeah. Old King James, they weren't quite sure, so they added small letters. It says that a man, and he says, are you for us or against us? And he says, I am the commander of God's armies. <laughs> Now, we could still say, it says angel of the Lord, oh, was it an angel, was it the Lord? How do we know it was Yahushua? Because then the angel says to him, take 
this shoes off your feet. This is holy ground. Now there's only one that has the right to say that. And it says he fell down on his face and worshipped. Also, another beautiful just kind of picture when we look at Moses. So the same kind of thing happens to Moses, right? When God speaks to him in the bush. But then it's Yahweh, I am, speaking to Moses. And he says, take the sandals of your feet. And then we know that Moses himself becomes like God to the Israelites. And then we have Joshua and he encounters, well, we have Yahushua and he encounters Yahushua. And then yeah. takes the sandals off his feet. And then he becomes to the Israelites, Yahushua, leading them into the promised land and being the commander of the army. And I just think this is such a beautiful picture. The way they encounter God is kind of what they become to the body. I just think it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, now let's look at grace. Keep these things in mind because we are... Now, um, our very substance, our per person, the person in the inside, it's going to be honed into godliness over the course of the next year. And so, I'm looking ahead and I'm going, I know God is going to do this, but it's one of the most difficult um, curriculums I've ever been given. Godliness. So let's understand how we are going to walk grace out. And especially for Joshua, for you, for the younger guys, it's very important to understand. That's why it's so important that we just get rid of any idea of what is special about us, our, our perceived calling, all of that. Let's get rid of it. We're not going to put our hope on it. We're going to build vision for God's plan. But we're not going to put our heart's hope on something other than the Lord is going to go before us. And yes, he says to Joshua, he's going to do great exploits. He says, this day the Lord will do miracles among you. And great things. But it's the Lord, we're going to follow him into it. It's not about us. Let's show how we should go approach grace. Okay. <clears throat> so, when we are saved, or rather, when we have put off the flesh and we have been resurrected into Messiah, uh, f entering the promised land, then we know that it says that we we enter his rest. So all of his work has been finished and all of his promises have been given to us. And so here we are at the start of the journey of taking the promised land, just because this is the imagery we use now. And all the promises of God come toward us, but it's brought to us in grace, which means it's brought as potential. So it's all true. It's all given. But now we have to walk it out. Okay, so let's say this is it. Okay, so grace brings all the promises, all the potential of what God has prepared for us to walk out. And we're going to, you had a really nice example this week of explaining how it works. But 
the way this is going to work practically and the way that grace is going to to work practically is as we start walking in the grace walking out the potential starting to manifest the potential that has been brought to us then grace is going to start multiplying growing so we walk almost into more and more grace the uh, potential kind of unfolds and unfolds so it's not that it wasn't there in the beginning but the more we walk in it the more it becomes mm -hmm. this is the the growth walking into eternal life when we see more of god's great grace manifesting in our life more of his promises manifesting in our life and because this is the whole butterfly effect because we are faithful in what he brought to us here we can be entrusted with even more three steps later mm -hmm. and six steps later and ten steps later so everything kind of has its own butterfly effect. The grace that I embrace now can have even greater grace in the future. So this is ideally what our walk would look like. But then alternatively, we could have that God, a person where the promises are brought, is the same, the same grace, the same potential, because we are one and God's promises are his promises. But if the grace isn't entered into, and the potential isn't entered into, then we can have the opposite effect, where grace actually and the potential actually starts decreasing. And the less and less we, well, the more we miss things, the less we walk in what has been prepared. Obviously, if I miss this step here, then I can't take the step five steps later because I miss the turn off kind of thing. Um, and this isn't to put a negative light on anything, but we do, we, we do see, for instance, again, when we look at Joshua and Samson. So both are called to strength. Mm -hmm. Samson is given strength and Joshua is called to be strong and courageous. And we see Joshua multiplying, walking out the grace, embracing, equipping, uh, taking all the steps that he can and we see the grace and the potential just multiplying, the growth just multiplying. And then he dies at the age of 110, but he's full of wisdom. Uh, there's peace in the land of Israel. He's done, he's walked out all of his potential and his destiny, and it's beautiful. And then we see Samson, where all the potential was brought to him at birth. He had everything going for him. But because he didn't walk in the grace and didn't actually multiply what God would have brought to him. So there is no godliness that we can see or righteousness that we can see. In fact, if we talk about righteousness and righteousness being a straight road, we see that when he tears apart the line, he says he was walking and then he, to go and fetch the honey out of the carcass, he says he was on his way and then he turned aside. Mm -hmm. If ever there was a picture of leaving righteousness, that would kind of be it. And so we see that he does the opposite and eventually dies relatively young. The Israelites don't respect him. The Philistines hate him, um, dies blind, and with kind of this last effort calls out to God, but he pays with his life. Um, and so maybe you can just do your example explanation. So we are in this fellowship going to expect the above 
yes. to be true. We have no reason not to expect it to be true. So we are going to see how we all come into grace in the same way. And we are invited and brought into the body. And then we have seen firsthand how people grow. How they grow. So as grace leads us into the bigger, we have to become bigger and bigger mm. and bigger. So we see that as we walk Before out into his image. God's will and God's purposes for the body. But the person that is going to walk the road of Samson will have to become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Now this is the negative effect of what is being brought and it works like this. Now this is not not to be edifying because if this is applicable then it's very edifying. Mm -hmm. We can expect to move into a greater... Have you realized how the narrow road leads you into a wider space all the time? Less, it's just nothing is that confining anymore. Yes, on earth we're going to experience all kinds of challenges relationally in uh, even the economic situation and stuff, but yet within all of this we're growing as people. It's like we grow in capacity and we grow in freedom and God creates this wider space for us to move in. Although there's still going to be earthly things that is going to trouble us. Um, and it works, it's very simple, it's very logical. If you have, as a representative of the kingdom, you have ten people and they're all given a big bag of wheat. Food, wheat, grain. And you have five of them that sit down, relax, God has provided I have a big bag of wheat and we start eating and we eat and eat and eat for a great while it will seem like there's more than enough more to go around because we don't have any understanding of how much time is, what time is oh, and then God has provided so all no of a sudden exactly <laughs> so all of a sudden we live in the lavishness of grace and then all of a sudden realize one day I have one hand of grain left. And then you think, if I plant half, I'm going to starve within a few days. If I ration it and eat, I'll live a few days, but there left. will be no more. And that's what will happen. The person that got the big portion of grain in the beginning that ate his portion daily but planted everything else would have multiplied what God gave them to such an extent that they never ever have to come to the realization that the other person had. They never even have to consider it. 
they are just going to, on a daily basis, tend to the harvest, bear fruit, and eat from the Lord's provision. They're never going to ever have to consider what to choose. Should I plant or should I eat? And this is why we want to have early warnings in place for everybody. We are all in a position where we can still make sure we plant, we tend the harvest, we work wisely, and we'll have enough to eat when it comes to grace. When it comes to God's will, His perfect will. We have seen in life around us how people in religion think that they can just walk out grace and it's just always going to multiply and then they come to a day, all of a sudden there's not enough to plant and to eat and you've just run out and then there's times when miraculous things happen but for most of the times God doesn't change the scenario unless it's a person that was not truly baptized comes to radical repentance and lays their lives down, then they get a new portion of grace. So, this is the reality. This is, this is true according to the Gospel. So, we want to keep all of this in mind in our own growth, but also in the way that we disciple, the way that we prepare, and the way that we take the Gospel out there. The way we see the world around us. Because the person that's got the little handful of grain, by the time grace has run out, they're so blind that they won't even realize it's the end. So this is like Samson. This, do I eat or do I plant? Either way, you end up playing with your life. So even if you did eat the last bit of grain and God did come through, he played with his life. So he had no remorse, he had no repentance, all he had was his hatred and bitterness for his enemies. That's all he had left. So did God still fulfill his plans through Samson? We can't say that. Just because God allowed him to pull the pillars down doesn't reflect any of God's glory, didn't contribute to the renown of God. It didn't glorify Him, didn't bring glory to Him. And so we want to make sure that we understand these lessons in its proper context. Um, we can run off with the five seeds that God gives us in the beginning, and we can go do our own thing, or we can do the right thing with it. We start multiplying it so that we can bear fruit with the rest of the body. It's those that are abide in the vine. And the vine is the body. Now we understand that the vine is the Lord Yahushua. But on earth, the vine is His body. There's no abiding in Yahushua on our own. Or in our own way. Forget it. It doesn't work that way. So we remember all these things. We fashion our mindsets, our lives in that way. And how is it going to work out? You might say, well, I am in church. It works out in the way in which we speak to each other, we act towards each other. Every word counts. Everything we do counts. 
Does that make sense? Right, so. Sorry, also, just so you kind of understand, just so it doesn't seem like we're ending on a downer. There's actually like, if we're going to look at the Psalms and the prayer ability that does that, we are on our way to overcoming. And so this is kind of on the creating the momentum for overcoming. Okay, so don't, this isn't just going down. Okay. Here's a rewarder. Yes, let's read this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Ah, yes. I'll, I'll read it to you. This is just one verse. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now that verse has the... Um, the divine code in it. The divine code of all things that is true works like this. Remember that. All things that is eternally true and significant and holy has this code embedded. Now read it again. Okay. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Now, first, it's mentioned without faith. Faith, we know, is the revelation of Messiah eternally as the new Jerusalem resurrection, the entire finished work. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And then... For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So it's that never-ending circle of you come to God. That says reward, that says comes, and that says So faith. you come to God only in response to what is eternal. And if you diligently seek Him according to that, you can't unseek Him for yourself or for your things or for your calling or for that the task He's given you now. You never seek Him in, in that way. You can seek Him in combination with faith, the big plan, the eternal truth, the body, the Messiah in eternity. You seek Him diligently in connection to that, and then He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But a lot of things, people think that they are fulfilling the Scripture by diligently seeking them for that new thing. You can't, if you have to make a... A decision or you need uh, employment or you need decision about your work or whatever you can't diligently seek him for that that's not seeking him you're seeking him in connection with faith so when it says must believe that he is there's a reference back to I am so you seek him for, for that you believe that he is so you fit the small thing of your life that you have to seek Him for into the bigger scene or bigger picture, bigger reality of His finished work and then the reward is something of like. Okay, Amen. Any questions? Let's ask the people on Skype first because I tend to forget that we have to ask them. Um, any questions or anything that you want to add or comment on? Cut
Thank you. Thank you. I just have a question with regards to the kingdom purposes and the earthly purposes. So, does the uh, diligently seeking him refer to kingdom purposes and the earthly purposes then uh, become part of the reward? It can. It can work like that. Um, the Lord will, as your heart seeks him according to faith he will entrust you with more and more so it could be a reward um we've just got to understand what looks like reward we've got to understand that the person that that started off according to what god has released if 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 it's hijacked by the enemy this is another thing we've got to understand that the lord could release a person into something but the enemy could come and say, look, I'll help you multiply that seed that the Lord had given you. And that's what happens. For instance, uh, a person, uh, what we see in Christianity is that the Lord called them into the same grace according to f- the finished work, gra- uh, uh, Messiah. Now, without realizing, they start, go- they start focusing on getting people saved that's the earthly purposes but it's not achieving kingdom purposes because kingdom purposes is what we find in ephesians chapter 4 so kingdom purposes is the body of messiah and growing the body of messiah to fullness where earthly purposes looks almost the same but they start focusing on getting people saved and getting them in church but they never realize that the kingdom purpose was it could be the same place, same thing, just building the body. And so what happens is they start getting busy with the worldly purposes and in effect cancelling out that which have, could have led to kingdom purposes. And then all you start multiplying is kingdom purposes. But if you're busy with uh, all you start, or what you could do, what you could see happening is as you pursue kingdom purposes and that multiplies, it would have a reward in the worldly purposes because the worldly purposes were still to reach people, but now the reward would be that it's body Mm. and the Lord would add and entrust the true body. Does that make sense? Does it answer your question? So just in job, let's, let's talk about the job you have to do. So now, the kingdom purposes is that you should become part of the body and contribute to the establishing of the kingdom of God on earth. In the process, you have to do a secular job and contribute. If you seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness in all the ways of your life, He will reward you in the actual worldly purposes. You will prosper with men and uh, with God in your job in the secular world. Uh, you will grow in wisdom. You will use those worldly purposes also as part of His kingdom purposes if we don't divorce the two. Or we don't over-focus on the one. Does it make sense? But the one doesn't prove the other because we have successful people in the world but that's not because they sought God obviously (laughs) yeah we've got to now differentiate when the enemy hijacks your 
purpose is in the Lord after salvation and then the reward comes from the enemy because it will always then be a reward that leads to more worldly purposes and cancels out the kingdom purposes. If that happens, it's easy to, to identify when that happens.